0: Feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day? Untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the U.S. Constitution bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low.
1: I'm going to talk this morning about John Locke, but before I do that, uh, I want to say uh, just uh, one further thing about Hobbes. I was thinking about how I presented uh, the point about the way According to Hobbes, people make the covenant to uh, where they surrender their rights uh, to act for themselves and give everything to the sovereign. I think the way I presented it wasn't correct now you, you remember as I had pictured it, I had it there was a series of hypotheticals in which each person said, "I surrender my right to act according to the law of nature if everyone else does as well. And then, as I mentioned, this raises a problem because if you have everybody saying that, you don't actually have any any real act of consent. You just have a series of hypotheticals, just like in the example I gave uh, you imagine the little boy who says to his mother, may I go to the movies? And the mother says, yes, if your father says you can. Then he goes to his, mo- his father and the father says, yes, you can. If your mother says you can. So he ha- doesn't have permission to go. He just has uh, two hypotheticals. So where I, I went wrong in what I was saying yesterday is that I said, well, this requires, if you say you need one person to start the whole thing off. Uh, now, in the example I gave with the uh, with the little boy, this would work, say, if the mother then says, All right, you can go, then that commits the father to giving permission. Also, since he said, You can go if your mother says you can. Your mother did say that he can, so therefore the father's committed to saying he can go as well. But if you have more than one person in in the Hobbesian case, we're having a whole lot of people. Then, if one person goes ahead and makes a commitment, that "I not only made all the uh, hypothetical commitment that I'll uh, surrender my right to act uh, to this to the sovereign if everyone else does as well," but I also say, "I do surrender my right to act to the to the sovereign." That doesn't commit everybody else. Uh, All that would commit everybody else would be everybody else making such a commitment except one person and the last person would also be committed. So I think to get around that, it's really better to see what Hobbes is doing is not that the people would not be explicitly putting in the conditional part in their commitment. They wouldn't be saying, I... uh, covenant to give my right to act to the sovereign if everyone else does as well. It would just be each one is making a, com- a commitment, a, a non-hypothetical commitment to the sovereign, but he has in mind that the commitment won't come into effect if, unless a sufficient number of other people do so as well. I think that seems to me a much better way of understand and making sense of what Hobbes is saying than the wrong thing I was suggesting yesterday. Now, that said, uh, we can now uh, turn to Locke, John Locke, who lived from uh, 1632 to 1704. Now, Locke came from a fairly wealthy family, and he attended uh, Winchester College and then went to Oxford, he didn't uh, think very highly of his Oxford education. However, he became a fellow of one of the colleges, Christ Church College. They call their fellows student. So he was student of Christ Church and he retained that position until 1684 when uh, he was removed on, by the direct orders of King Charles II. Uh, after he 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 after he 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 followed a fairly standard course in the humanities but he was also very interested in medicine he he although he didn't take his final degree as a doctor i think he complained that there were that you you had to go, attend too many uh dinners in these special uh places to qualify he 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 uh, was really qualified as a doctor, and he's, he's one of the uh, one of the few f- uh, great philosophers who was also a doctor. Another one, incidentally, was uh, William James, who was an M.D. Uh, after uh, he he taught at Oxford for a while, he then. Uh, uh, met uh, the Earl of Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper. And uh, after he met the Earl of Shaftesbury, uh, the Earl requi- had to have a very serious operation, and Locke supervised the operation. He was very, uh, as I mentioned, he had training as a doctor, and a- the operation was very successful. And after that, uh, the Earl became very attached to Locke, and Locke Stayed in his household uh, for most of the remainder of his life, and he was an advisor, an advisor to the Duke and um, to the Earl on various matters. Now, in his early uh, years, uh, around 1660, Locke wrote uh, two tracts on government essay and also uh, essays on the law of nature. And in these essays, in uh, these tracts and I say he took a very different position from the one that's as generally associated with him. In his early work, he was he thought said that government does not rest on popular consent. He was an absolutist, and he opposed religious toleration. He said that the supreme magistrate has the right to decide on what the religion of the country should be. So he was. Uh, his position was quite sim- similar to that of Thomas Hobbes. Uh, the reason I mention this, I won't be talk about his early work uh, in the body of the lecture, but the reason I mention this is that, uh, as usual, there is this Straussian interpretation of Locke. And the Straussian interpretation, it, I should say this isn't the interpretation of all Straussians, but some Straussians, such as Robert Cranach, who is written on on uh, this topic. Uh, those Straussians claim that Locke was always remained a Hobbesian, and that he really wasn't the uh, the defender of very limited government that most people take him to be. Strauss himself takes this position in his most famous book, which is called *Natural Right and History*. In the chapter on Locke, he argues that Locke was really pretty much of a Hobbesian. Uh, I don't find this a plausible view, but that is the Straussian view. Uh, Now, as I just said, uh, Locke was uh, an advisor to the Earl of Shaftesbury. Now, now at that time in England, remember uh, from the lecture on Hobbes, King Charles II had come back to England after the uh, his father, King King Charles I, had been executed 1649, but King Charles the the monarchy was restored. King Charles had come back, but when he came back, there was still there were uh, there was a lot of conflict going on because there were some people who were very were very attached to the Protestant Christianity. They they were very anti-Catholic, but on the other hand, the king himself, Charles II, was very sympathetic to Catholicism, and in fact, he secretly converted to Catholicism. And uh, uh, So there was a big fight going on uh, throughout uh, Charles II's reign between these various religious factions. The, The Earl of Shaftesbury was very much in the anti-Charles II camp. He wasn't sympathetic to Charles' Charles's policy at, at all. And Locke uh, had to go into exile. He went to uh, France in 1675 because he was suspected of writing a pamphlet that was uh, uh, very critical of, uh, of King Charles that upset the, uh, the royalists very much. Locke always denied... Writing the pamphlet uh, is something I think it was called something like a letter from a gentleman in the country it, he He always denied writing a pamphlet but he Locke you can't always take Locke's denials at face value because he he tended to be very secretive about his uh, activities it, it would have been let's not to say that he wrote it, but uh, just that you can't always believe what Locke said about what he wrote. So uh, as I say, he was in he was in France from 1675, and he came back to England in 1679 when uh, the uh, sort of the the things had died down; it was safe for him to come back. However, things got even more uh, troublesome for him uh, a few years later. Uh, the Heir to the throne after what uh, Charles II was his brother, James II. James uh, II had converted to Catholicism, so the people who didn't like the Catholics didn't want James II to uh, ascend to the throne, and they tried to get a bill passed in Parliament that uh, excluded him from the throne. This is called the exclusion crisis, but Charles II was able to, uh, stop this bill from going through by just not uh, dissolving Parliament. In any case, even if it had passed, he could have simply vetoed the bill. At that time, the, the King had the right, it had an absolute veto over any legislation passed by Parliament. The last person, last monarch to use the Royal veto was uh, Queen Anne, who was uh, who, came, who was uh, uh, somewhat later. So uh, the the anti Catholics though weren't giving up. At least some of them weren't. There was a, a plot by some people to kidnap the king and his brother who were uh, attending the uh, horse races. The, the plot was this was in 1683, there were, uh, some people were going to seize them and possibly do away with them or at least uh, do something to the brothers so, he wouldn't, so that you wouldn't have a Catholic king. And the, uh, the royalists got word of this plot. And there, there was some indication, uh, Richard Ashcraft has a Book on uh, Locke's Revolutionary Politics. There was some indication Locke was involved in this plot, so he had to go into exile again. This time, he went to uh, to the Dutch Republic, where he was he, he remained until for several years. Now, uh, after uh, he w- the the struggle between the Catholics and the uh, Protestants in England uh, intensified after the death of Charles II when James II, his brother, became king and as the Protestants' theory started putting into effect very pro-Catholic policies. And uh, one reason besides uh, the, opposite, the difference in religion that a lot of the English uh, people didn't like the Catholic policy was it. Uh, the the big the one who was sponsor the main sponsor of James II was the French King Louis XIV, and uh, in the a lot of the English people feared mm. that James II was going to surrender his kingdom to the Kingdom of England to France or at least completely subordinate English policy to. Uh, to the uh, uh, French policy, so uh, they were there, uh, after things didn't get better, so there was a, uh, a move, uh, popular move to 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 replace James II on the throne, and uh, his uh, William III was the Prince of Orange, and his wife uh, Mary were invited to come to England, and they defeated. It. There was a uh, after a, a couple battles, James II fled to fr- f- France, where he remained at the court of, uh, of uh, Louis XIV. Uh, the reason, incidentally, that uh, uh, they invited William III and uh, Queen Mary, other than the fact that they were pr- uh, William was a leading Protestant prince, that they uh, uh, Mary was actually the next in line to the throne after James II. She was his daughter. Uh, James had had a a son, but that son was, the baby was Catholic, and so the the Protestants naturally didn't want him to uh, succeed to the throne. So Mary was the next in line. Also, her husband, uh, William of Orange, was the son-in-law. I mean, not only son-in-law, of King James, that he was the grandson of Charles I. His mother, uh, Princess Mary, was the daughter of Charles I and Queen Henrietta Maria. So they had a quite good claim to the throne. It wasn't just that the English were bringing in, the Protestants were bringing in some usurpers. They were, had a pretty good claim once the uh, Catholic uh, uh, ruler was excluded. So Locke was a, a, an enthusiastic supporter of this uh, change it was called the Glorious Revolution of 1688. And at, uh, for, uh, for a long time, uh, historians thought that Locke's most famous book on government, the Two Treatises on Government, was written in, as around that time as a defense of the Glorious Revolution because Locke, in the book refers refers to something like our our great King William. I think he dedicates the book to him or at least refers to him very favorably. But it turns out that that isn't the case. The book was written quite a bit earlier. Uh, Peter Laslett, who was the put him. Uh, uh, published a famous edition of uh, Locke's two treatises arguing that the book was really written in 1679, and then other people, such as Ashcraft, say no, it was somewhat later, uh, 1682 to 83, but it was actually not written in defense of the glorious revolution. So after Locke then came back to England, and then he uh, he, he wrote other works, uh, such as The Reasonableness of Christianity and, of course, his his famous work on *Essay Concerning Human Understanding*, you know, uh, *Letter on Toleration*, uh, the *Essay Concerning Human Understanding*, *Letter of Toleration*, and uh, the two treatises all were published in 1689. Then uh, he just lived out the remainder of his life in, in England. He was uh, much uh, he he, uh, he continued his philosophical continued his philosophical work. Now, uh, in trying to understand uh, Locke's political philosophy, I think we have to take account of his uh, uh, point in his uh, metaphysics. Uh, as usual, there's, uh, I tried to show, say, in discussion of Aristotle, Aquinas, and other people, there's very often a direct connection between the uh, political philosophy, general philosophy, and his political philosophy. Now, Locke thought, uh, didn't agree with, remember, Hobbes said, uh, rejected entirely the appeal to natures or essences in the way Aristotle did. Aristotle said, every substance has a nature. I say, uh, there's something about any any substance, it's essential properties, it's the, the, the properties without which the substance wouldn't be what it is. Every substance has such a, a, a nature, but uh, Hobbes thought there weren't any natures. Now Locke had the view there are natures to substances, but we, at least at the present time, with the way uh, with our state of uh, scientific knowledge, we can't know what they are. For example, uh, is it part of the nature of the human mind that it, it can't, that it has to be an immaterial, immaterial, as Descartes thought. Descartes said, uh, uh, thought that the mind can't be composed of matter. Uh, Locke said, we can't, we don't really know this. We can't know what the natures of things are. This is not so, uh, something we could find out. Now, this raises a problem for his political philosophy in this way. Uh, Locke, wants to say that all human beings have certain rights, but how is he, if he, if, if he doesn't know what na- the natures are, we can't find out what the natures are, how is he going to find out who the human beings are? Uh, now, one way, or his way around this was, he said, we can take the property of rationality Using reason, we say whatever has this property will count as a human being for the purposes of his political philosophy. But then, if you say that, then you have a further problem. Why should we care about rationality so much? Aristotle had an answer for this as he was saying that uh, what he's asking is part of the human nature to, the, the purpose of human nature is to exercise your reason fully, but remember, Locke doesn't think we can know anything about human nature, so he has a problem what is so good about rationality. And here is where Locke's uh, uh, belief in God, his theistic view, comes in. There's big disputes, as I'll mention later, how central belief in God is to Locke's philosophy, but uh, I'm inclined to think it is very central. There's a very good book I recommend uh, on this topic by uh, Jeremy Waldron called God, Locke, and Equality, and uh, that's very much influenced uh, the interpretation I'm giving here. So uh, uh, on this view, what Locke thought is that uh, human beings in their rationality are in God's image. What God's image, when we say human beings are according to the Bible created in God's image, what this means is that human beings, by being rational, are really sharing in the divine mind. And so this is why uh, human beings are especially important. Now, uh, once given this starting point, we can identify the human beings, then Lot, argued there's a law of nature that people ought to follow. Uh, What did he mean by a law of nature? Well, uh, he didn't mean sort of a scientific law, sort of saying how things happen, how uh, various events take place, such as it's a law of nature. If you mix oxygen and hydrogen in certain proportions, you'll come up with water. It's more, it 's uh, more law of nature is an ethical law, it's something saying what ought to be the case, what human beings should do further, the law of nature is universal it applies to everybody it isn 't just that uh, there's a law of nature in England one law of nature in England another law of nature in California, so on. everyone has a common law of nature, and also the law of nature is what God wants us to do. God has commanded us to follow the law of nature. Now, all right, that's what, a law, what the law of nature means, but what is the law of nature? Well, Locke said there's a fundamental law of nature, and then there's derivative laws of nature that it, you deduce from the fundamental law. And he says, uh, uh, this is a direct quotation, the fundamental law of nature being that all, as may be, should be preserved. When he talks about all, he means all human beings. So the fundamental law of nature is that all human human beings should uh, be kept alive as much as possible since they're the image of God and we want to... uh, they should, so they, therefore, they should be kept alive as much as possible. And what uh, the purpose of ethics then is to, is to promote human preservation as much as possible. It's interesting, as you'll see in a later lecture, uh, Herbert Spencer took a similar view, although not on the same theistic grounds as as Locke. At least not in his later work. That uh, Spencer also had the view that Human preservation, uh, preservation of the human species is the fundamental rule of ethics. So, given that he had this view, he said that uh, suicide is not morally all right, because he said you can't quit your station on your own. God is our creator and wants us to be preserved, so we therefore have to stay alive as long as possible. Now, this, then, as I say, Locke then said there were derivative laws uh, that we can deduce from this maxim of preservation, and one of these is that uh, each person is a self-owner. As Locke puts it, everyone has a property in himself. There, since each person will be able to preserve himself, since people tend to care about themselves more. Than about other than other people do about them, they'll have a better chance of preserving themselves if they, if you, if they're regarded as their own. Each one regards himself as his own property. So now you might it appears to be a problem here in that if Locke says each person is a self-owner, uh, how can he also say that uh, really we're, dependent on God that we have to do whatever God says we should do because doesn't that really make God our owner? So how can you say both that really God is our creator and really has rights over us and that we also own ourselves? So I think what Lot means here is that with respect to any other human being, we can't uh, regard ourselves as subject to that. Person. Everybody is the owner of himself or herself as regards other human beings. Uh, it's true that ultimately God is over us, but no one has the right to claim that he's God's representative uh, and can tell us what to do on that basis. Uh, so, this incidentally is, I think, well, not so incidentally, is why uh, it when Locke holds, as I'll mention later, that uh, uh, churches are purely private associations, this isn't just an incidental part of his philosophy or just something he held uh, for separate reasons with regards to religion. It's integral to his key position because if, he, if say there's a, a church that has divine authority, then it would be hard, much harder, to make the case that each person is has a property himself, and that other people can't tell him what to do. Because then you could say, someone who's in the, ch- the church says, "No, no, we, you have to do what uh, God says, and we're God's representatives, so you have to do what we say." So, by saying that church is a purely private organization, Locke stops that objection from uh, arising. Uh, let me just make one digression here. It really isn 't uh, connected to the lecture, but that isn 't going to stop me uh, sometimes when we say uh, uh, people is uh, use the term, as mentioned representative uh, like we can 't say somebody god 's representative on earth we have a term sort of for representative vice uh, vicegerent, uh, uh God's vicegerent on earth. Uh, And the digression is, and I've seen this in book after book, I've seen this mistake, people will have this word as vice-regent. It is not vice-regent. The word is vice-gerent. That's going to be on the final exam, so (laughs) bear that in mind. Uh, All right, so we have that each person is, in Locke's view, a self-owner. Each person owns himself. Now, Locke also holds that uh, the earth has been given to all human beings in common. That's a direct, uh, something fo- a statement found in the Bible. It was a very common view at that time. So the earth has been given to, to everyone in common. What does it does this mean as far as individual property rights are concerned? Well, Locke says it can't be that this means that you have, before you use any item in the earth, you have to get consent from all the rest of mankind. You might think that would be required, because suppose I say uh, something like uh, this uh, this water pitcher belongs to everyone in the room in common then if there's some question on what to do with the water pitcher it might seem that everybody would have to agree on what to do about it because each of you on this hypothesis has right has rights to it but if if one applied that policy to property then it would turn out that you really couldn't get everybody to agree on what to do, would be very cumbersome, so people wouldn't be able to survive on that basis. And this would violate the fundamental law of nature calling for human preservation. So Locke says that can't be the way we uh, have all things in common. And What he said, on the contrary, was uh, individuals can appropriate Separate items of property, you can take things from the common store by mixing your labor with with them you do something to the to the say uh, land or uh, uh, bring it into cultivation, and then this gives you ownership rights to it Now this is in the later philosophical discussion is an extremely, as you probably know, extremely controversial move on Locke's part. Uh, a lot of people have, have objected to his argument. One objection which uh, Robert Nozick mentions in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, a book I'll be talking about later, uh, is, I should say, Nozick mentions this objection, he, it, uh, contrary to what many people have thought, he isn't endorsing the objection. He's just mentioning it as a point that Lockeans have to confront, but he isn't saying at all that this refutes Locke's view. Uh, He says, why is it if, if you say, well, mixing my labor with something means that I own it, why should you say that? The argument is, I owe myself, I owe my labor, I've mixed my labor with this other, with this commonly owned property, therefore it becomes mine. Why shouldn't you say instead you you lose your labor? It's now uh, still common property, but you don't own it anymore. You just put out some labor on the common property. Nozick, as characteristic of him, gives a very vivid example. He said, suppose I uh, take a glass of tomato juice and just pour it into the ocean uh, doesn't it, would we say that I own the ocean since I mix some labor uh, with the ocean? Would we say I've just lost my tomato juice? So this is one objection. They say, well, why does mixing your labor uh, mean that you acquire the property? Well, one thing Locke could say, I think, in reply to this is just that it's by this is uh, uh, you. This is one way you, if you, you want to have a system of individual ownership, because this is one way you will be able to preserve human beings by doing, so. So, by doing that. So this is one reason why you should take the uh, mixing the labor as giving you ownership rights rather than saying you lose your labor by, uh, by, uh, once you've done that. Because otherwise, this first fundamental law of nature wouldn't be met. Uh, now, it's a, uh, I've, so far, the way I've given Locke's theory is a bit oversimplified or quite a bit oversimplified in that Locke puts in, besides saying that you can acquire property by mixing your labor with it, with un, with the common, uh, with the earth, with the, he all he puts in some qualifications of this. He said that first, he said, uh, you have to leave as much and as good for others. Uh, supposing uh, I appropriate some land on this. Uh, I can't appropriate land if as a result of doing so, other people won't be able to appropriate land supposing, say all the uh, we imagine there's uh, land people available for people to take, and various people start appropriating land, and then say there's just one area left, and I take that, and there won't be anything left for anybody else. So if you if lot means by as much and as good for others that I couldn't appropriate land, that I couldn't take it. But it's very implausible to take him as meaning the proviso in this quite strong sense. Uh, Because if you take him this way, then you're going to get a a big problem. Uh, Can anyone see what the problem is? Uh, yeah.
2: Well, I would say that since the land, for example, is not all the same, any piece I take, they can't have that piece. Mm-hmm. So that piece I have a monopoly on, so to speak. And so, of that particular portion, I haven't left anything behind. So there couldn't be any homestead in this.
1: Uh Well, the, the I the response to the question was that uh, if someone appropriated. one piece of land, at least that piece of land wouldn't be available anymore, so in that sense it wouldn't be as much left for others. Now, that's an interesting point, but I don't think that's quite uh, what would be such a good objection, though, because you certainly wouldn't have that plot, but it wouldn't follow, you wouldn't have as much and as good for others, just say, as if if we have lunch, if one person takes one of the box lunches, you still leave. It, it, you, someone else can't take that one, but he has others as good that he could take. Uh, the problem I had in mind, rather, is this. Uh, supposing you have the, the last person says, uh, I can't take the land because then there." there isn't there won't be anything left for anybody else so i'm violating this proviso then we have well, what happens to the second to the last person if he were to take uh, appropriate land then there wouldn't be anything available for the last person to take you see might you might think he could because there's the second to last person there's one more lot available namely the last one but remember we said the last person can't take that because doing so wouldn't leave anything for anybody else. So you have kind of a backwards induction problem you can get from this that nobody could appropriate at all if you took the proviso this way. So uh, it seems much more plausible to take Locke as meaning by as much as good for others, not that he means you have to have land parcels left over in this way, but rather that... Uh, conditions for other people won't be worse off in some more general way. And in fact, he he allows for cases where nobody has any, there's no further land to appropriate, he said, people then can work for others or uh, earn money that way. So I think it's implausible to take him, meaning this as much as good for others proviso in this very strong sense. Uh, but that doesn't get him up that doesn't end the complications uh, he has another proviso is you can't uh, you can appropriate property, but you can't allow you, you can't take so much that what you have would spoil say uh i'm going along and I see some grapes so I can take some you and eat them. I just can't keep piling up so many grapes that I can't eat them and just uh, let them rot away. That wouldn't be a, a right thing to do. And you can see why not, because, remember, the uh, property is there so that people are able to preserve themselves. We need to use items in the earth in order to live. And the, the fundamental law of nature is that uh, we should preserve ourselves. So if People can take property and just uh, let it rot and then let it spoil and prevent other people from using it. This isn't at all conducive to human survival. But this uh, proviso doesn't limit people once money comes into existence because once you have money, Locke says, then you can uh, exchange uh, items you can't use for something else. So once money comes in, then you can uh, appropriate as much as you want. Uh, so the the real, uh, so Locke then, what we were left with is Locke has a very strong view, sort of very uh, classical liberal or libertarian view of property ownership, that people can really appropriate property, you can take property for yourself really without much limitation, so long as other people are made better off by having such a system of property. And of course, they will be since the system where people can just, they just common use of goods, but uh, no property rights, no right to exclude anybody else from using property that you appropriate is an extremely inefficient one. it lead to, uh, it won't promote human survival, so Locke wouldn't allow it. Uh, now, I want to uh, mention one objection that uh, to Locke's theory. It was raised in a book called Locke on Government. It's a quite good book by uh, D.A. Lloyd Thomas. It's a very good account of the Second Treatise. Uh, and He says, well, uh, supposing Locke thinks that mixing your labor with, with unowned land or commonly owned land gives you ownership rights in it. Then he can't hold that there are any provisos to that. Either the labor mixture gives you property Rights or it doesn't. How can it be that uh, you have you get labor rights? You get ownership rights of property if you mix your labor with it, plus these various other meeting these various provisos. Uh, he thought that's somewhat uh, that's a contradiction. Either Locke is saying either labor mixing gives you the right or it doesn't. But although, uh, as I say. Uh, Lloyd Thomas's book is a very good one. This isn't a very good argument at all, because what if the claim just is that you acquire things by mixing your labor plus meeting these provisos? I mean, I, I think, in fact, he's right that mixing your labor is enough to acquire property, but that isn't, it isn't that if you hold otherwise, there's some kind of logical flaw in the argument. There's nothing at all wrong with saying that you need to meet several conditions to uh, own something. So there's no log- the logical flaw he claims to find in the argument really isn't there. Uh, now there, before I turn from uh, Locke's view on property, uh, there's another point is that Locke holds that uh, supposing there are some people in this who were too aged or ill to work, to do any work. They can't uh, acquire any property for themselves or they can't work for other people and that way uh, get uh, what they need to survive. Locke thinks uh, those who are able to acquire property have a duty to aid them. You can see why he holds that because uh, of this fundamental law of nature. Those people should be, they're human beings also and they have to be preserved. However, it isn't clear that those people then have, can just take what they want or what they need from the people who have property because Locke refers to this as an obligation of charity rather than justice. So it isn't clear that one could support a welfare State on this basis uh, now the Locke's discussion of uh property, which is uh, chapter five of the second treatise, is somewhat apart from the rest of the book, and in fact, one view is that it was written uh, at a different independently of the rest of the book and what Locke is concerned to do in the rest of the second treatise is to uh, give an account very different from Hobbes of how legitimate government arises. Remember, uh, Hobbes had the view that everyone really surrenders everything, all their rights to the sovereign. Uh, Locke uh, favored a very different view. What he said is that... uh, Uh, we we start off, each person owns himself. Now, in the state, we imagine a state of nature, that's a a sort of society without any government, and Locke has thought that we can have property, as I've just explained, we can have property rights without government. Uh, Property rights are things that people acquire just by appropriating land, in the way I've explained. We don't it's not that you get your property because the government assigns it to you. you it, property is a natural right, and, uh, and also, uh, you, you, so property is a natural right, and also, money. Uh, this is where Locke anticipated uh, Carl Menger and von Mises. Money can develop without the government. It isn't. It doesn't have to be that the government says uh, uh, something like uh, people have ex- must accept these pieces of paper as money because we say so. Locke envisions money developing in the state, it, or money's present in the state of nature. We know this because he says that once money comes into, it, into being, then the spoilage proviso doesn't apply anymore. All right, so, he, so he's saying... Uh, money, you don't need the government to have money. Uh, now, what do you need the government for? One would like him to answer nothing, but that isn't the way he does it. What he says is that in the state of nature, uh, each person has uh, rights, such as the right to life and property rights, but he, each person has the right to enforce uh, other people's uh, respecting his rights, or not just respecting his rights, but just respecting rights in general. Uh, supposing, say, uh, someone tries to assault me, I have the right to stop them from doing it. And Not only that, uh, if I see, say, one person assaulting someone else, I have the right to stop that. I have the right to enforce the law of nature. So everyone in the state of nature has the right to enforce the law law of nature. And this in you. this involves not only that each person can uh, stop the other person from aggressing and sort of restore the previous, the correctly existing state of affairs, but he has the right to punish violations of the law of nature. Like punishment means to impose some additional penalty on the person besides restoring what he wrongly taken. It, it, it's up to each individual to decide what the appropriate punishment is. Uh, so Locke suggests well, supposing we have a, a system of state affairs like that where each person is on his own trying to enforce the law of nature. Then we'll get a very chaotic, undesirable result because people will differ on what, uh, on dis- they'll have disputes on has has someone violated the law of nature or not. So you can imagine people having dispute: Are you taking something from from my property or is it really your property? We would have differences of opinion you know, on which people have appropriated which property, what the appropriate penalties would be, what's the appropriate punishments if somebody has done something wrong. Or we could have uh, disputes uh, uh, not only on the, on the punishment, but people, according to Locke, would tend to make mistakes in their own favor. I mean, supposing Uh, I'm in a dispute with someone, well, obviously I'm in the right, I'm in the right, the other person's wrong, because that's the way people tend to act. So uh, how can we remedy this state of affairs? Well, like, uh, I I should mention, uh, when Locke Locke pictures what would happen in the state of nature this way, it sounds As I mentioned, it's a quite bad situation. So this gives the Straussians one one of their openings. They say, well, look, even though Locke starts off by saying his state of nature is very different from Hobbes because he's postulating people have all these rights. In fact, what he comes up with is pretty close to, to Hobbes because people are at war with each other. I think this uh, seems to me very much exaggerated, but that is one of the contentions that Strauss has in uh, natural right and history, and his followers have echoed him on this point. So uh, Locke, not having had the benefit of studying Strauss, uh, had a different view of how we get out of the state of what we do about being in the state of nature. What he said was, we can imagine... People getting together, and they don't, as with Hobbes, they don't give up all their rights to a particular person. On the contrary, what they do is each person surrenders his right to enforce the law of nature, not any of his other rights, just his right to enforce the law of nature, not to any particular person or group of persons, but to the whole community. So everyone surrenders his right to the whole community to enforce the law of nature, then once the whole community has the right, has, has this right to enforce the law of nature, then the whole community decides by majority rule what the government is, what the government is going to be. They, they don't have to, even though it's the whole community, that decides they don't have to establish a democracy. They can establish a monarchy or an aristocracy or a democracy or mixed type of government. They can really do anything they want. They can't, though, establish an absolute monarchy. Although Locke does certainly does allow monarch a monarchy. He says if it turns out that the uh, community, the majority of the community, decide to have say you have a, a legislative body and executive. And the executive has some of the legislative power also, as was the case in, in England with the, the, king of, the king of England is not only the chief executive. He has, uh, at least at that time, quite a good deal of legislative power. Uh, he then is, in a sense, supreme, Locke says, but still he's not an absolute monarch. Uh, Now we have the question, well, why is it that it's the majority of the community that gets to decide what the, the government should be? Uh, why don't you have it, say the whole com- We could see why it wouldn't be the whole community has to decide because then it's very unlikely people would arrive at any decision. People, there's always people who have different views on matters, and then we wouldn't be really getting out of the situation in the State of nature, we would be probably even in a worse position because we've all surrendered our rights to enforce the law of nature, and then there's no one left to enforce in, to the whole community. But the whole community hasn't agreed on anyone who can enforce the, the law of nature, so we're all in a very sad state of affairs. So the one, uh, what Locke says is that if you have a body, the community, it really has to go in one direction or other. And so the greater force prevails. But it's it's kind of a physical metaphor. You imagine everybody, say, some people are pushing one way, some people are pushing the other way, and the, the majority have a bigger push, so things go their way. But this, as I say, is just a metaphor. And I think what Locke has in mind is something like this, uh, each person is taken to be free and equal to everybody else, so if you have to decide one way or the other on things, if you go with the majority, you're respecting uh, you're respecting uh, human beings' rights more than if you impose a minority view on the rest of people. If you had a minority, say a minority verdict was put in, then you would be saying those people are, in a sense superior to the majority, but a one person one vote uh, rule really is more in line with the basic equality of people that 's been a very influential argument in subsequent justifications for uh, democratic rule now uh, you may have noticed I was rather careful the way i didn't say one man won, but I said one person one vote. I wanted to leave open the question did Locke mean to include women in this uh initial contract? It isn't clear what he doesn't really say anything about this. He does have uh somewhat traditional views of marriage although not uh he says normally the in a marriage the husband is uh, can tell the wife Makes the decisions and tells the wife what to do. However, he says that this is really a default arrangement. An arrangement that people in a marriage have the right to contract. Otherwise, so you could marry someone and uh, say you could you could decide that the wife would be in charge rather than the husband. That's a for the time is a quite was a quite radical view. So, uh, one uh, Tory critic of Locke, named uh, George Hicks, said that on Locke's view he'd have to say that women were included in this uh, in this in- initial contract. And he thought that was an obviously absurd view, so he thought this was really refuted Locke. But it it, it isn't clear what Locke would have said about that. He, he as I say he 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 certainly he didn't he was very careful not to get in trouble, not to uh, uh, say anything that would be considered too radical for his time, but it's not really clear from the evidence what he would have said about that. Uh, All right, so we now have uh, the, the majority of people have decided on what kind of government they want. Now, when they decide on the government, this is a very important point to bear in mind in understanding law. They don't, the, the the majority or the whole community, don't make a contract with the government. There isn't a second contract. We have the first uh, contract where everybody surrenders uh, his right to enforce the law of nature to the community. There isn't a separate contract where the community, having voted for someone, now has a contract with them. It's rather that they the community has entrusted the government with certain functions. So the reason this is important is if the government doesn't follow the yeah. policies that uh, that they're supposed to, say if the government starts violating people's rights, then the p- the community can withdraw its obedience to the government and put in something else. You see, if we had a contract, then... Well, if there's a claim a contract has been violated, then normally there would have to be some kind of discussion between both sides to see who, uh, to see what would happen. Say if you have a contract with someone, you can't usually unilaterally say, all right, you violated your contract, therefore uh, I don't have to keep the contract either. You would usually have to be settled by some agency or some person what would happen in such a case but in this case it isn't a contract the, the, the government is the servant of the community it has to keep uh, do what the community wants uh, now Locke is uh, very clear also that he, when I said when he said people have the right to uh, uh, if the government doesn't do what they want, they have the right to get rid of it and replace it with a new government. It's very clear that they shouldn't do it just very readily. This is where, you remember, in the Declaration of Independence, which was very influenced by Locke, this is a reference to that the, the, the people shouldn't change the government for light and transient causes. That's a direct Lockean view, that it has to be something very serious. However, the community does have the right to... Decide on what to do, and among the the, uh, the things that the, the government can do that uh, in, entitle the people to reject it is that, supposing the government uh, decides that uh, it's going to surrender the country to a different power, different for, or, or uh, subordinate itself to a different. Uh, government, then that would be violating its trust because the community has entrusted the government to that group, not to some other group. So, supposing the government said, "Well, uh, I think we'd be better off," say, say, imagine uh, something like uh, an extreme New Dealers take over in the U.S. in the 1930s. They say, "Well, I think we'd be better off as a prov as a province of the USSR, in view." Uh, People would, the people would be able to stop them from doing that. They wouldn't. You can't transfer. The government can't transfer its powers to something else. And this was very. This was a quite topical concern because, uh, as I've said, people were afraid that uh, James II was going to transfer the government to uh, Louis XIV in France, or at least subordinate the English government to the French king if he were to remain in power. So that was one reason for getting rid of him. Now, as I mentioned, Locke doesn't say, he he, he makes quite a distinction between saying the community as a whole has the power to enforce the law of nature and requiring a particular uh, system of government. He doesn't require people... Uh, say democracy he doesn't say we have to have a system where everyone votes. So one reason, perhaps he said that one motive he had is saying that is that he, as usual, was being very careful. And the Whig Party that he favored, there were various factions of it. There were radical Whigs who thought everybody really does should have the right to vote. It shouldn't be. Vote shouldn't be restricted as it was in England at that time to an extremely small percentage of the people. On the other hand, there were more conservative Whigs, including uh, Locke's patron, the Earl of Shaftesbury, who, who didn't have that view at all, who favored a very restricted franchise. So Locke really has it both ways because he said people do have the right, everyone has an equal right to be part of the community to which the, uh, who decide what the government is going to be, uh, but it doesn't follow that everyone has the same franchise. Uh, now, once we have a government in being, I think uh, one of the, it's very important to see, one of the key parts is that, this is, I think, one of the most libertarian sides of Locke, is that the government is very limited in what it can do. It's Remember, all that people have surrendered to it is the right to enforce the law of nature. It doesn't have any other power, so it can then uh, enforce people's pr- uh, previously existing property rights, but it's not clear it can do much else. It can def- have the right of defense and uh, respect uh, justice, but What else could it do? Because all the power it's gotten is to enforce the law of nature. That's the explicit grant. So it's very much more, it's a very limited government indeed. Now there's some people, for example, this one I mentioned, D.A. Lloyd Thomas, he thinks that according to Locke, the government can uh, rearrange property rights Uh, But I don't see any real, it seemed to me that if you said that, that you would be going against the whole structure of Locke's argument. Because again, what people have surrendered to the government, to the community that establishes the government, is only the right to enforce the law of nature. They've retained all their other rights. Uh, There's another argument that's sometimes given for that says that the government can do more than this, uh, and this is that Locke talks sometimes about what he calls the prerogative power uh, and what that what he means by that is that sometimes a condition will. Happen, which calls for emergency action. Uh, Locke gives this example. Uh, Supposing someone's house is burning down and there's other uh, houses burning down also. And to stop the fire, uh, you have to demolish some house that isn't burning. Locke thinks in an emergency, uh, people would be able to do that. And so the executive and the government can... Sometimes act with prerogative power, but I think this clearly is, uh, or at least perhaps not so clearly, but it seems to be. At any rate, this is a quite limited idea. It doesn't mean that because of the prerogative power, the executive can do anything it wants. I mean, it seems like uh, Locke has in mind here some very limited situations where. There's some immediate danger to people that requires action that would otherwise not be allowed. Uh, the reason I mention this is that uh, there's, a, uh, as often happens, there's the Straussian view. And this one is that the prerogative power really gives the executive the right to do anything it wants, sort of makes him into, in effect, a Hobbesian sovereign. And this has some contemporary relevance because. Uh, Harvey Mansfield, who's one of the, who's a professor of government at Harvard. He's one of the top uh, Straussian political thinkers. He contends that the uh, U.S. Constitution was really founded on Lockean principles. I think he's he's, basically, he's probably he's right about that. Lockean principles influenced both Declaration and Constitution, but he takes Locke in this Hobbesian way. So he says that on the Lockean view that he thinks underlies the constitution, the president, because of his prerogative power, can do whatever he likes really in foreign policy. So he says, well, people shouldn't say there's anything unconstitutional about the Iraq war because the president is exercising his prerogative power to cope with emergencies. So you see, this is a, a this is a very live issue in uh, in where it shows how Lockean theory has some very direct relevance. today. but as I say, I think if you keep in mind that in Locke's view, the uh, all that people have surrendered is the right to enforce the law of nature. This really shows that uh, you can't take the prerogative power in this very expansive sense, because the emergencies that you're coping with would have to be ones just that are enabling the executive to enforce people's previously existing rights. It can't be that he just goes off on flights of fancy of his own, as uh, Mansfield implies. Now, uh, There's a big problem with the theory I've presented so far, is that according to the theory, everybody's gotten together and uh, surrendered his power, his right to force the law of nature to the community. The community then establishes a government. But the big problem is, of course, this, none of this has ever happened. People didn't all get together and establish a uh, surrender their rights in this sense. So the question then is, well, how can Locke claim that we're bound to any actually existing government if people haven't expressly consented to it? Locke sometimes uh, seems to say that express consent is necessary. Other times he talks about tacit consent, and it's not clear what the conditions for that are, that, say, sometimes it seems like people just by accepting the jurisdiction of the, of the government living in the territory of tacitly consented to it. Otherwise, sometimes he said, if someone accepts property, say, from someone else, uh, he's accepting all the conditions that go with the property, including that the property is under a certain legal system. I don't find any of this plausible. I think probably the best rational reconstruction we can give of Locke's argument is that it's a hypothetical, a hypothetical consent argument. He's saying uh, if we were to imagine ourselves doing this, it would be rational to do so. Uh, that's why we should consider ourselves under an obligation to the government because this would it would be rational to think that if we were to get together and do this, then uh, we would. Surrender our rights, the a right to enforce the law of nature, the community, and then have the community establish a government. So it's a hypothetical argument. Uh, I, want to, uh, I, I want to mention one objection to such arguments that's been raised by a very good philosopher, a libertarian philosopher at the University of Arizona, David Schmitz. And he, he objects in principle to hypothetical arguments. Of, Consent arguments of this kind, because he said, "Well, uh, in these arguments, it isn't that the uh, the when the people dis what when people disagree in the hypothetical situation, their agreement isn't arbitrary. They have made the agreement for various reasons. In the Lockean case, people have made the agreement because they don't want the situation where." Each person is trying to enforce the law of nature for himself. They think it would be better for to have some common arrangements to do this. So they don't want a situation where there's all, all these disputes. So he says, well, if there's a reason, if there are reasons for what they agree on, then doesn't the consent drop out, the real justification? For the policy, for whatever the policy is, is just the reasons that people are are, are agreeing on. What do we need to bring in the hypothetical contract for? I, I think this is an interesting argument. I don't think it works because the reasons, uh, what what you would get in the hi, in the contract, there are reasons that people have in the situation for agreeing on something, but according to the the theory, the moral theory being propounded. These aren't, the, those aren't, those reasons don't tell us what the obligatory force of the result is. Uh, it, suppose, uh, let me make this a bit more concrete. Uh, supposing people in the hypothetical situation have agreed that, to surrender their power to the community. So uh, the reason we should regard ourselves as, ha- as having done that is not that those people find it rational to do so but that we what we think we ought to do is whatever people in such a situation decide to do i'm sure i haven't explained that in a way that's at all comprehensible but that's the best i can do now but you see the basic the, the basic point is that Schmitz hasn't come up. He's just denied the type of argument that's being offered. He hasn't really come. Up, he hasn't really given an objection to it. The, the argument isn't that uh, it is that what we ought to do is what people in such a situation should do. There isn't anything. I mean, maybe that we w- won't want to accept that argument. But there isn't anything in principle wrong with that kind of argument. So the fact that people in the situation have reasons to do what they do doesn't entitle us to drop out the hypothetical agreement from the argument because that's the basis of the moral obligation. On uh, the time remaining, I want to uh, then respond to a Straussian challenge that, if it were correct, would Knock out a large part of the basis. Of what I was claiming in this in this lecture, uh, I argued that there is a strong theistic basis to Locke's philosophy, namely that uh, since he doesn't believe in we can know what the natures of things are, including nature of human beings, he needs to. Uh, he and then he relies on just on rationality. Uh, wherever the property of rationality is present, and we know there are human beings present, then he has the further problem, uh, why is this important? That's where he brings in, because we're created in God's image. Uh, so if you take God out, then there, that destroys the whole structure. If, say, I, I would say, just in uh, if you want a philosophy that doesn't, not on a theistic basis, probably the best bet is to reject Locke's view that we can't know nature's, if they can go back to an Aristotelian view that we can. But suppose you do take Locke's basis, then if you, uh, theistic views on nature, then if you not got out of the picture, then you're in trouble. Now the Straussians uh, say, well, no, this is all wrong because Locke, like everyone else, was a secret atheist. It's funny, in the Straussian view, uh, whatever the philosopher they're talking about is, he always turns out to be a secret atheist. It's a bit like, say, uh, deconstructionist readings of poems where, say, the poem always turns out to be about the process of writing poetry and the difficulties of, do, of communicating meaning. Whatever the poem is, it's always the same message. So it's like that with the Straussians, you always, everybody's a secret atheist. Now, uh, so what I want to uh, address in the last topic, there was, the, there was a very uh, strong defense of the Straussian position in a book by Michael Zuckert uh, called uh, Launching Liberalism. Yeah. Uh, Michael Zuckert's wife, uh, Christine Zuckert, is also a Straussian philosopher, so it's uh, uh, it's not the only husband and wife team or Straussian philosophers. There's a William and Miriam Galston are also both Straussian philosophers, which runs in the family. So he has uh, arguments, various arguments, that, trying to show that Locke is really an atheist. So I just want to, in conclusion, go through some of these and. Uh, so we can see whether they 're strong or not, uh, well, he has a first ar- one of his arguments is to justify the whole uh, sort of responding to an objection people might raise in Straus case is that how can you say Locke is an atheist if he keeps talking about a belief in God? He wrote a, the book called Reasonableness of Christianity." He wrote commentaries on Saint Paul. How can you say this? So he has an argument that we should think that Locke is engaged in deceptive writing. The argument is this. In the essay on human nature, Locke uh, criticizes certain philosophers. He says, these philosophers write in a very uh, obscure way. They could uh, contend that black is white and white is black. and Locke says that they destroy the... uh, possibility of human communication. So this seems like very much going the opposite of what Zuckert wants, because Locke is saying people should write clearly, they shouldn't engage in deceptive writing, like people trying to argue that black is white and white black. Of course, when Locke is saying that, that was a standard way of criticizing the Jesuits who who were alleged to train people so that they would be so obedient they would say, Black is white and white black. So you see, Zuckert's argument. Though, well, well How does Zuckert say that this really supports uh, the view that Locke is deceptive? Well, he said, look at. Let's look at Locke's view of color. Not only does Locke say goes further than saying black is white and white is black. Locke thinks there aren't any phenomenal colors at all. He says, say something like, when I see that there's, I'm looking at. Uh, a red object, there isn't any real sensation of red. There isn't any real red color that's in the object. All that's present, all that is the case is that the the, the object has the power to produce in me certain red sensations. So he's saying, look, uh, Locke is condemning these people for obscure writing, but he has an even crazier theory Therefore, a theory even more at variance with common sense. So therefore, he really, in in uh, attacking uh, convoluted or esoteric writings, really indicating that he, he's defending it. But this isn't a very good argument because in in Locke's theory, although he certainly he holds that phenomenal colors are not, in the object. There are just sensations in our mind that are produced by the object. Nothing changes in the way we actually look at things. Locke isn't arguing that we just see sort of blankness. We don't see actually color. The, the ordinary world is exactly the same in the Lockean view as it is in views that color, phenomenal colors are really present in the object. So uh, Zuckert's argument, I think, doesn't work. Then, uh, if addressing the uh, theological point uh, th- more directly, Zucker points out that Locke says, as one of his arguments, that God exists. We can't say that, think that human beings created themselves, because if a human being created himself, he wouldn't have brought it about that human beings die, because every being wants to keep itself in being. So how could a human being, if he created himself, it brought it about that human beings die. So if if God, so Socrates said, well, if God then created us, according to Locke, since God does, ha- we do die, then this indicates that God is hostile to us. So, and if God is hostile to us, then we can't be obligated to do what he says. But, uh, again, this argument really doesn't work because the principle Zucker is appealing to is that each being tries to conserve itself in existence, but it doesn't follow from that that any being will try to conserve whatever it produces in existence. That, so it wouldn't at all indicate that God is hostile to us if God has brought it about that we die or hasn't made us immortal. Now this leads, though to perhaps the central Straussian argument uh both that, uh, that Locke is an atheist and we can't take his moral theory seriously. And that is that Locke holds that in order uh, for the uh, law of nature, in order for the law of nature to be true, in order to hold that we have objective, there objective moral judgments that are. Pro- that are uh, it must be the case that a human being survived death. There's uh, we have immortal souls who are subject to uh, punishment and reward in the afterlife because otherwise we wouldn't have a motive based on self-interest for being moral. Locke is assuming that uh, morality and self-interest have to dictate at least ultimately the same thing. So the argument is, well, if Locke says we can't, we can't, and Locke, uh, so Locke thinks first that we, we have to, have, we have to be, have immortal souls if morality is to make any sense. But then Strauss and Zuckert following point out, Locke doesn't produce any proof that we have immortal souls. So isn't then Locke really undermining the basis of his own contention because he's saying morality depends on our having immortal souls subject to uh, punishment and reward, but he doesn't give any proof that we have them. So isn't he really then leading the careful reader to see that he doesn't believe any of this stuff? So what I think he's overlooked there is just that is the, the, the whole thing, that is the argument, namely that morality wouldn't make any sense without postulating uh, immortal souls. Morality does make sense, therefore we have good reason to think. We do have a mortal soul. Uh, uh, Kant gave a somewhat similar argument to that uh, uh, later on. So I think uh, the Zucker and Strauss have just overlooked the nature of uh, Locke, Locke's argument. I could go through some other arguments, but I think uh, I want to allow some time uh, for questions. So I think I'll, I'll end at that point. Uh, any questions? Uh, Roderick?
2: Locke says that, that uh, when you move from state of nature to um uh, uh, social contract, he says there are two things we give up. One, thing we give up entirely our right to be a judge in our own case. As mm. it. Um, mm. And then he says we, the other thing we give up not entirely, partly, is we give up however much of our liberty is necessary to protect the rest. Mm. So I imagine the people who think that, uh, that Locke is authorizing the government to do a lot more in terms of redistributing property and so forth, are probably trying to do a kind of a federalist interpretation of that that necessary proper clause. They're trying to, uh, I think that all sorts of of extra things are necessary in order uh, for us to protect the rest, but it's not good about that problem.
1: Yeah, uh, the question was, uh, Locke says uh, that we give up when we leave the state of nature. Uh, the right to be the judge in our own cause and also we give up uh, whatever is necessary of our liberty to protect the rest and so wouldn't perhaps that would be a way that those who support a more expansive view of what Lockean state can do could get a foothold i i, I think that that's right but uh, as as you suggest i don't think it would be clear just how why it would be necessary, say, to interfere with people's property rights to protect, uh, protect their liberties. I mean, uh, we would have to see how they would make the argument in a particular case, but I think you're right. That would be one way they would uh, try to get around the argument. Uh, Dan. Well, I have two questions. A uh, simple one simply
2: I wanted to ask what the title of the, lawyer, the Thomas book you mentioned lawyer, and uh, my long, long question, though, is – It seems to me um, that maybe Henry George was actually a kind of Lockean heretic, because what he's doing is he's taking this idea of mixing your labor, and he's applying this to say, well, uh, we can't tax labor because that would be taxing human beings. We can tax land, since that's something that um, is fundamentally not created by people. Um, The products of mixing your labor, the improvements on the land, those are the things we can tax. I'm wondering, therefore, whether there's sort of a broader uh, kind of intellectual tradition that misinterprets Locke and takes his uh, labor-mixing idea and
1: turns that into a kind of labor theory of ah, Well, uh, there are two parts to the question. The first part is easy to answer, and the second one, uh, the first part was the title of the book I mentioned by D.A. Lloyd Thomas. It's Lock on Government, uh, published, I think, by Routledge. Uh, the uh, second question is, uh, what couldn't we see Henry George as a dissident Lockean in that he says we have uh, we we own our own labor, but we don't own the land. We, we the land that we uh, we we don't own land, so we can't claim that we own land by mixing our labor with it. It's we we and you can therefore the government has the right to tax land. And the question was, couldn't we see kind of a dissident Lockean tradition, sort of coming into a labor theory of value on on that basis. Uh, well, I think that, that you certainly could. For example, Herbert Spencer in the first edition Social Statics does give a view where, just like the one you're suggesting, and uh, that was one that I think Henry George was influenced by. So I think you can certainly see some connection there. Uh, now, I do think, though, it's important, although there's complica- as usual there's a complication, it's important to distinguish between the claim that you own something because you mixed your labor with it and the claim that the value of something is dependent on how much labor has been put into it. That would be two different claims. However, the complication is that one of the arguments Locke gives for the labor mixture view is that Most of the value of something is not just from the prop, from the the property that you start, the land that you start with, but your labor adds most of the value with it. So that's one of the reasons you you should get the whole thing. So I think uh, you're quite right. There is some connection there. It is. uh, Anyone else, Uh, Roddy?
2: One thing you could say about that last argument is that although Locke does say that most of the value of things comes from labor rather than from the raw materials, he never says, as far as I know, that the value is proportional to the amount of labor that he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, He just says that raw materials by themselves, without labor, aren't, aren't good for any, aren't good for much in most cases. So most of the value comes from labor, but doesn't mean that the amount of labor necessarily determines uh, the amount of value, In some cases, labor might be very little, like, uh, for example, picking up an apple. And an apple on the ground doesn't do much good. And an apple you pick up and I save
1: the lion. Um, mm-hmm. But the labor wasn't. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, the point was that uh, Locke, although he's, he sometimes says that the value that, uh, of the land we acquire mostly comes from labor, he doesn't have a view that the uh, value is proportional to the labor that you put into it. Uh, I think this is, uh, of course, enti- entirely right. I mean, he doesn't try to establish a labor theory of value on that basis, and he doesn't. He doesn't have the claim that your ownership rights v- uh, vary in proportion to the value, of the uh, labor that you put into it. So it, your point, I think, holds both on uh, the. Economic theory on the value of the good, on determining the value, of it, and also for ownership. Well, I think we're out of time now, so thanks very much.
0: Feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day? Untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the U.S. Constitution, bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low.